life is either an incredible adventure or it's nothing at all. The following is an AMA episode where I, the host, Rob Auchincloss, answer questions sourced from listeners, friends, family, and the only rule is that I have to answer whatever question they ask. My name is Rob Auchincloss, and this is the Holocene Podcast, where we seek knowledge of the most creative, adventurous, and bright among us. These individuals are storytellers, entrepreneurs, athletes, designers, and everything else in between. It is my job as the host to take what they have each learned in their own lives and codify their knowledge that you can use their lessons in your own life. This episode of the Holocene Podcast is sponsored by the Holocene Magazine. Listeners listening right now can use code PODCAST at checkout to save 15% on the first issue. So interestingly enough, I, for some reason, have always recorded these episodes after some kind of interesting hardship or big life choice or decision. And I think that's telling. And some of my answers will reflect that. And I think it's important for me to kind of temper expectations by saying that, you know, I am always a super outspoken person, and those who know me well uh, know this. So here we go. The first question is from my father, and he asks, you are always juggling many projects in different areas of interest. How do you select the ones that you want to pursue, and how do you prioritize once you select them? Does it come down to putting out the hottest fires? And that is an interesting question. And one that I don't think my dad has actually asked me before in normal conversation. So let me break that down. In terms of selecting the ones that I want to pursue, generally speaking, my creative agency studio, AFOCAL, we focus on things that are for the future of civilization or exploration. So if it's not a concept or a mission or a directive that is overall improving our livelihood or way of life as a human species or allowing us to expand beyond what and how and when and where we exist now, then it's something I usually don't touch. Um, and that is something I decided a few years ago and has really been the guiding light of most of what I've been doing, thankfully. Um, and so how do I prioritize or select them? This is something I've always struggled with and usually it comes down to what projects have distinct deadlines from clients and which projects are basically fully dependent on me to continue to move along and grow. And so basically almost every single day I have to reprioritize what is the most important thing. And sometimes the hottest fire isn't the most important thing that I've prioritized. It's just purely dependent based on everything that's going on and everything that can be going on, if that makes any sense. Austin Wade asks, extrapolating the trend of AI and automation innovations and assuming those eliminate a lot of jobs and give people that time back for leisure, what do you see the future of travel looking like? More experiences, boutique hotels, luxury Airbnbs, and Amans? Um, for you aren't familiar, Amman is this glorious international hotel chain that is just stunning design, stunning experience. Um, definitely worth checking out, A-M-A-N. Um, so I believe that AI is going to replace the boring jobs, the manufacturing, the house cleaning, the, and this is over a long period of time, the driving, 
um, the moving, the transporting. And in terms of like day-to-day efforts, I think, you know, most lawyers and finance and accountants especially are going to be all replaced by AI within the next couple decades. Um, some people may disagree with me on this, but I just think that they're things that are easily trainable by machines that will not make the same mistakes and do not have to infer based on sub like like active context and what i mean by that is like take an accountant for example they're basically human calculators that are responsible for organizing and maintaining complex systems 50 years ago it was all a paper-based system nowadays accountants are relying on software that aids them and they're basically there to check the software to make sure it's following within the rules and laws and codes of taxes and understanding the whole system but if you have a system like OpenAI or chat gpt that's able to train a natural language model almost instantly on, well, not instantly, but over a very quick period of time um, on these complex rules and regulations between states, like soon we will have, you know, AI generated taxes. And, you know, I think it's important to note as well that the IRS is on this little tangent. The IRS is, you know, basically creating a free tax filing service that will allow people to directly file with the IRS. And most people don't know this. In most other countries, you are sent your final tax return and kind of uh, tax bill, tax form filled out for you. And you basically only have to submit it if you have to make a change or move something around or say something that there's an error. But otherwise, it's just automatically done. They send you a bill for what you owe. And I think that that's really the future of tax systems because our current system is the most convoluted and bloated and bureaucratic BS that I think exists in the world. So to answer the question more directly, I think that once we are able to replace all these boring jobs, humans will begin to do more creative jobs. I think there are always jobs that will never be taken over by AI. And at least until we're able to model the human brain and, and get to sentient like thought, which I, I mean, I think is possible, but I personally don't believe we should ever go there, but that's just my opinion. Um, so I do believe that once people are doing these more creative jobs, um, that naturally gives them more freedom of location, uh, on, on, on average. And I think that we're going to see that people are going to gain a lot of time back because they're not having to put in hours at a certain job to get output. They can do what they need to do, get paid and compensated for that based on the value it creates, and then do whatever they want with the rest of their time. So I think we're going to see more people traveling, more people spending time with their families and outside and getting in shape and eating good foods and just and just living the life they want to do. Some people might not want to. Some people really just enjoy going, living on the dole, working a standard boring job and making their eight hours of wage a day and then going home. Like some people want that and, and even need that to a point. But I think a lot more people are going to enjoy the freedoms of creativity and and uh, freedom. Um, Justin McBurney asks, what is your worst that you're willing to speak about childhood memory? Has it affected your personality or outlook on life? And if so, how? My worst childhood memory. Um, so there's two that come to mind. One is when I was at Bush Gardens when I was, I think, elementary school, third grade, fourth grade. Um, I was with my dad, my dad's boss at the time. And uh, I was pretty scared of rides. I just didn't, I didn't like being out of control. I didn't want to be like dropped or thrown around. So there's the log ride where you like drop a hundred feet in the air down this big chute. And I was terrified of it. And so my boss had this great idea to like force me onto the ride to make me like get over it. 
um, which is a terrible idea. And uh, I was like trying to walk away and he literally picked me up and threw me into the ride and like held me down so I didn't jump out. And I just like cowered underneath the front seat for like the entirety of it. And I was, I was horrified and shaking and miserable. And, you know, to this day, it's almost created this like trauma with like motion based uh, dropping sensations. So like, you know, I'm someone who flies a lot and turbulence doesn't really bother me, but like the kind of like thunderstorm, really bad turbulence, like that just like sends shivers down my spine and like brings me back to this one thing that I've like tried to move on from the trauma from. And I've done a pretty good job of it, but sometimes it'll like creep back up. Um, I've had a few flights in the past few years that have kind of had turbulence like that and it's always kind of brought me back to that point and it's it can be jarring but you know at the end of the day the odds of me dying and something like that are low um another memory that i remember quite vividly is uh i'm gonna have to redact a lot of details in the story um but when i was young me and a few friends were being babysat i don't know i think we were four three um by someone in the neighborhood and uh, me and my friends were, you know, sexually assaulted by this babysitter. Uh, and uh, at the time, I really didn't understand it or know it was happening. Like he, he wanted us to, uh, you know, uh, start jumping around naked on the bed, and I didn't know what he was doing over there in the corner. And you know, um, and to the and and it wasn't until much later in life that I was like reminded of this in therapy and started talking about this more and realized like what this guy was doing and 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 the basis of this and so I've always had this like very strong aversion to any kind of like sexual assault like it's one of those things to me that like I think it is an absolute like once you once a human being does something like that there's no coming back from that like I am very strong in this. Like I think I think our laws in this country are way too weak around sexual assault, um, and um, sexual harassment and things like that. It's just something that we have to really build up and really, really protect kids and women and men and trans kids and everyone. Like like and anyone. I don't care how you identify. I don't care you know, what your pronouns are or what your gender is or what your sex is or just every single living human being we have to protect from these monsters because it is just something that is proliferated by so many different things and organizations run globally in sex trafficking and moving people around and taking advantage of people that just don't have the means and it is horrifying and I think it's something that more and more people are waking up to this, the fact that this, this whole system exists, but we have to do whatever we can to continue to just stop it. Um, and so, you know, I have broken off relationships with people I've worked with in the past once I found out that in their past they had some kind of, even if it was like, you know, they were a little too handsy with a secretary at one point in their career, or, you know, they were had some questionable actions and how they treated women in the workplace or, you know, how they talked about women or men or anything or people or just any of it. Like anytime I see that it's game over. I just, I just walk away. Like it just is not worth it. And it's just something that is a complete, complete non-starter for me. Um, when, when you asks, uh, why'd you pick rocket science over something in the software space? Um, 
so like obviously when i was going into college in 2012 fall i knew software was the future you know i was still the biggest apple fanboy in the world and fucking loved everything they were making um and you know i i really wanted to you know this i love this idea of creation of of ideas and things and you know building in the space and kind of doing whatever you could to make the future possible but I honestly like I gave programming a try and I really did not like it um, to me it was just still pretty rudimentary and something not worth doing and also like the what you could what you could do with natural programming languages at the time was a lot more limited than what you can do now I mean it's something that's exploded in the past few years I think if I was entering school now I would definitely try to give it a, another try but I still think I would enjoy it and to this day like I stay I stay away from programming and I have a lot of very good friends and members of my team that are fantastic programmers and brilliant software architects and I rely on them to you know help me flush out my visions of what I want to create um, like do I stand do I understand uh, the syntax yes do I understand the programming languages absolutely but like do I want to sit there and write code no I don't um, and that's just something that that I've always chosen so when it came to rocket science I just I have such a affinity for space and a love for space and a love for anything related to space and I, I just think to me it is like the you know the final frontier as they say it, it is like the absolute pinnacle of human achievement and ability and what we can do in this life um, going and exploring the universe and utilizing you know microgravity for manufacturing goods that just can't be made here on earth or you know utilizing the the technologies that we build along the way to help us back on earth I think most people don't realize that like most of the amazing things that we use day to day all are syndicated on technologies that were developed during the space race or by means to get into space because it really is the vehicle in which you really have to like have the most efficient the most assessed the most calculated the most refined system possible just to just just to just to play in the game and through that a lot of technologies had to be invented that filled these gaps and those technologies have been revolutionized into our society and allowed things to really proliferate. So like we don't, you know, you wouldn't have the modern cell phone or the modern like Tesla especially or any kind of, uh, you know, piece of Uber technology that exists uh, without the advancements that came from the space race. Do I think that we would invent these things eventually? Absolutely, but it really accelerated the advent of nascent technologies that helped us push forward. So to me, rocket science was you know this not only this this fun crazy thing where like oh yeah you're doing rocket science because that's fun and wild but like i genuinely loved propulsion i loved thermodynamics i loved um kind of that that mess between chemistry and physics that lives in like that physical science world um i i i love that i never liked the wet science i never liked the super hardcore science of software computer or electrical engineering um i just love that understanding the natural laws of physics in our world and beyond our world um, and being able to codify that and build systems and structures and spaceships and space planes and cool things about the future and I think more importantly you know I grew up with an affinity and a love for Star Wars as well and I'm a big Lego guy as most people know so I'm like sitting on my bed right now staring at the 8,000 piece Lego AT-AT um, and <laughs> um, 
I used to pretty much only get Star Wars Legos as a kid, like birthday, Christmas. I'd save up my money and buy them. I don't know, I wasn't buying like Pokemon or Yu-Gi-Oh cards um, or like drum sets. And uh, and yeah, so like I was always building new things and what I wanted to build with my Legos were like space planes and space stations and like, or tr- just trains. I like trains a lot too. Um, but but uh, yeah, I, to me it was just like the most interesting thing and it was where like, my imagination could run wild because it truly felt unlimited. And with the current like proliferation of space and the space economy that's existing now, um, you know, it truly is really growing faster than, you know, software engineers, like software engineers are so, uh, multidisciplinary and where they can exist and where they can go and where they can, you know, be useful. Um, it's just, I think it's, it's something where, you know, we also need aerospace engineers and a lot of aerospace engineering is augmented by all the other engineering disciplines. Like we, you need a ton of software and a ton of hardware and a ton of electrical and, and a ton of like every single discipline of engineering to really make it in space. Um, but to me, like I always personally found the most interesting thing, like the loudest, hottest part of the rocket, so to speak. Um, and rockets are just really cool. And if you have never gone deep in understanding like how the basic rocket or even a jet engine works, like it's, to me, it's just so fascinating and cool, uh, let alone a car engine. Um, so yeah, I mean, that was it. I also always have had a dream of being an astronaut. So to me, that felt like the most direct path um you know that's that dream has kind of changed uh based on what's currently commercially available to get to space but we'll see i think at some point in my life i will go to space um if i if i have my way with things but um yeah um so betsy hosp asked a few different questions that i'm going to kind of splice up um so what is different about afocal than local innovation hubs um and it's something that her and i actually talked about yesterday when um she asked me a few more questions in person but long story short like the grand goal of afocal eventually my creative my creative studio um and what it does now for people that don't know is i basically scale nascent concepts into startups products and services so if someone comes along and wants to build you know a software system for mission management for satellites in space we help them grow that if someone wants to create a uh company where we take leftover brown grease from uh manufacturing and food processing and turn that into feedstock that can be used to make sustainable aviation fuel or sustainable marine fuel um then we do it um if if we have a company that wants to um you know help or i guess take you know, therapies found in worms and turn those into medications that can help people with, you know, ailing diseases like asthma or IBS. Uh, we help in any way we can. Um, kind of the initial outset of a focal was focused mostly on like, how do you brand? How do you position? How do you build the pitch deck? How do you market? Um, and then it's, it's, it, it turned into what I want to do, which is focus on pro- focus on the product as well. It's like, I want to take a venture and make its name and make it look good and build it a beautiful website and have it have this amazing, incredible brand and then build a pitch deck 
that can raise millions of dollars that can then be used to turn around and focus on the product. And then from there, since we built relationships with the companies, we usually then focus on the product, whether that's software or hardware and focusing on manufacturing and design or focusing on, you know, software product with, you know, full stack development, uh, UX, UI, interface design. And like, it's something that I started during COVID a few years ago and it's been really slow moving, but it's really now finally starting to really catch fire, so to speak, and grow. And it's something where it's just, my problem is always talent and just finding more enough people that want to work on crazy ideas. Um, but you know, I'm kind of guided by the principle of, you know, paying people well, giving them fun things to work on and not making any shit, just only making really good things, no shit allowed. Um, and so eventually I would love to have enough overhead and money from profits of the company to be able to invest directly in ideas that come to us. So if someone comes to me and says, Hey, I have this idea. I don't have any money. And I go, great. I'm going to take a cut of your company. We're going to basically help you create this thing and fundraise for more money and help you scale it as big as possible. So someone gets to basically, you know, have that zero to one to get to the point where they can actually start to grow it themselves. And like, I don't want to unfairly own anyone's company or not give anyone stake at the ta- like a seat at the table. All I want to say is like, look, like you have no money to pay us. So for compensation, we're just basically going to take a partial ownership in your company, you know, 10%, 15%, something that is, you know, gives us skin in the game to be able to say, okay, we're, I'm going to write off these hours and pay my employees with our profits from other projects to allow us to basically build a future. And then once the company can start paying us, and if they still want to work with us, then we'll do that. Um, and so like, that's kind of the innovation hub of the future that I'm trying to build. Um, it's a very slow moving process and something that will take a long time to get to that point. Um, but it's definitely the next couple of years. Um, you know, the first few years, the first few clients are the hardest and then just scaling is the next hardest thing. But thankfully I have a, I have a pretty much a team of people ready to go, um, that are interested in working. And, uh, as long as, excuse me, I'm yawning. As long as, uh, the, the projects keep interesting and, and, uh, and, uh, people keep paying us for cool things then it'll keep happening um that's very simply what it is right um she also asked what motivates you um i so it really depends on the day or what's going on in my life um more recently you know with the magazine and the podcast and to people that don't know this like i basically bootstrapped the entire first issue myself. Like I didn't look for advertising. I didn't look for partners. I just basically organized the funds and paid for the printing myself. And it was very expensive because when we're printing at the quality that we are and you're printing at the low volume that we are, the per unit cost is very high. So when people think we're selling the magazine for $24, we're making a ton of money. We are not. Uh, <laughs> I will tell you that right now. Like eventually, once you can print a lot of them, the, the per unit cost drops significantly. And then we can use that money to, um, you know, pay for better content and upgrade the site and get into more stores and, and do some more partnerships and creative and video and, and just, and I want to reinvest all the money it makes back into itself. Right. Um, to basically make something, make a better product and a better experience over time. Uh, you know, hosting events and doing workshops and travel and, uh, you know, we just as much as possible. Um, and so because of that, you know, I found myself personally, financially in like a pretty rough spot earlier this year. Um, you know, it was a hard time for funding for startups, which I mentioned it was a pretty dry time for me and the team and I for paying. And, you know, I would always, you know, make sure that, you know, the lights were on 
Um, but yeah, so for a while, you know, I was motivated just simply by growth and trying to get, you know, as many magazines out of my living room as possible and, you know, making sure I can pay rent and pay my insurance and, you know, pay any, you know, remaining loans I have and, and things like that. So most recently I've been motivated by just like keeping things moving while also growing as fast as possible. But overall in life, I'm motivated by making cool shit with cool people or just, just doing things for the sake of themselves. Like, you know, I get more excited about building a new Lego set or going for a walk for, for a couple hours than I do about like, you know, making some money somewhere. Um, and I think that's always going to be me, but I also need to make sure that like the, when I get excited about like a new contract, I'm usually more excited about what the money will allow the team to do in terms of the project and also what growth that will give me. And it brings me one step closer to my goal of being able to like really try to build cool things from scratch with a really good team of people. Um, and that is what really motivates me. I also love travel. Um, I love spending time outside. Um, I love spending time with my family and my girlfriend. Um, I just love, love, love the time I have with them and the experiences we have together. And that also motivates me. And in order for me to take off more time and to travel more, you need to pay for it, you know? So as I said, like, I'm not someone that I would say I'm as motivated by money or success or growth. I'm motivated by ensuring I can live the life I want to live and get to the points I want to reach in life to be able to achieve what I want to achieve to make me feel like I'm actually making an impact. I think that's the answer. Um, and she, her last question is, why? how do you stay grounded while traveling? Um, so for people that aren't aware, I'd say the past two years, I have spent probably 85% of that time traveling. Uh, living out of a suitcase or living somewhere else that wasn't my home, um, if not slightly more. And I'm just one of those people that I can, you know, bloom where planted. You know, I could be in the middle of busy Taipei walking around and feel like, you know, this is a place that I can get work done and sleep and find good food and, and meet new people. It could happen in, you know, rural California. It can happen in Europe. It can happen in Asia. It can happen in Africa, as it has, you know, for, for a lot of that time, actually. Um, and I'm just someone that like, I, I always create my own routine wherever I am. So if I'm living somewhere, like when I lived in Cape town for two separate months, um, I basically created a routine. Like I found my favorite walking trails. I found my favorite restaurants. I found my favorite, like I joined a gym nearby the grocery stores. I basically just like continued to live a semblance of life that I like to live. Um, and that, I think that grounded part is within yourself. Like, I don't believe I have to be in any one place to ground myself. I believe I can be grounded within myself. And that's something that through a lot of meditation I've, I've reached. Um, and I think through meditation, that's allowed me to reach that point and be able to, you know, say that with pride that, you know, like I am grounded wherever I am. Um, most of the time. So some, I, I think, I think travel is an amplifier. If you are grounded in life and you go travel, you'll become more grounded in yourself. But if you are feeling chaotic inside and you go travel, then you will feel more chaotic. Um, so if that makes any sense. Um, Elsa Soderberg, my girlfriend, um, asks, you mentioned recently that you're entertaining the idea of a quote unquote normal job. How seriously are you considering it? And how do you reconcile that with the type of life you decided you want and can live? Has your philosophy changed or evolved? Um, and so recently I was talking about like which companies I would put a pause in what I'm doing, not in terms of the magazine, the podcast, but in terms of like a focal and working for startups and living a bit more kind of, uh, transient, 
life, so to speak, um, and, and jobs and go in somewhere. And it would have to be for an organization or an individual that um, is really doing something amazing, right? Um, and I don't really work well with like a traditional boss hierarchy structure. Like I need to have a, bun- a bit of autonomy. I'm okay reporting to people and having someone guiding the overall mission, but I need, I need a lot of autonomy. Um, and like the number of places I would actually end up working are low. Um, you know, I'd go back and work for some of my previous clients. Um, if they, you know, some of the startups and design agencies they've built, like if they wanted me to come on, you know, full time for a couple of years and really help them grow or scale or build out something, I'd absolutely consider it. Um, you know, I have a love for the, the brands that I love, um, Lego, Arcteryx, Apple, um, any one of those, if I was able to ever get a job at a higher level, um, that would allow me to have an autonomy and creating new things. I would absolutely, absolutely take advantage of that in a heartbeat. Um, but I think long term, you know, for me, it'll always be kind of running my own show and doing my own thing. Uh, once you taste that forbidden water, you can really never go back. Um, I mean that genuinely. Um, and so, you know, I've I've recently shut off working relationships because it turned much more into like a fiefdom and like a, I am an employee than like I am helping you grow something. And whenever that happens, I have a key conversation. If you know, the, 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 uh, you know, client is unwilling to kind of change the way that things are, cause maybe they just want someone to kind of boss around and do things. And I immediately usually end that relationship. Um, and that's just kind of how that works. So to answer that, you know, it's like that life would not be compatible with the life I'm living now in terms of where I have freedom of movement and I can kind of jump on things as they come along. And if a great idea comes, I can just pivot and do that immediately. So, you know, I definitely have to create that kind of system where, you know, I could still spare every other waking second I have doing the next great thing I want to work on while still supporting someone else. But like, I, if I'm not going to give it, if not, if I'm not going to give someone or something my all, I don't do it. Um, and so I think that that's, that's how that's changed. And that's evolved because at some point I was like, you know, fuck this. I'm never going to work for someone else again. And I think that that's kind of changed slightly because there are certain things that I can only achieve by, um, at least at this point in my career and this point in where my own companies are by joining forces with someone else because of just the amount of tenure I have, the amount of experience I have and the amount of access to funds I have. Uh, and like pedigree, you know, it's like, if I go work at a, at a, at a world round design studio for a few years, it's way different than, you know, me starting from scratch and it helps, you know, launch things. And so if there's also a job that would help me kickstart a few other things or another venture, another product, um, then I would absolutely do it. Um, Parker Hess asks, what is a salient moment where you have learned the difference of feeling lonely versus being alone? Um, I had a girlfriend um, back in uh, 2017 to that early 2019. It was like a little less than a two-year relationship. Um, and I think that I had always been someone that really enjoyed being alone. Um, and this person was someone who did not enjoy being alone whatsoever. Um, and I always kind of realized that like whenever I felt lonely, it wasn't because I wasn't with someone else. It was because I wasn't being true to myself or I wasn't listening to myself and felt just alone. Um, You know, there were times during COVID when I was completely alone um, or living in Memphis when I was temporarily working for a startup where I just felt completely alone and would kind of fill that time with, you know, alcohol or random Tinder dates or, you know, something like that. Um, but you know, and that's kind of like, that was just me being bored. I think a lot more bored than, than lonely. 
Um, and I've never really been someone that feels lonely. Um, and I think being alone is a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful thing. And, you know, you can find a lot of power in that. And sometimes like my preferred stance is to be alone. Sometimes I prefer to spend time with people, but it's always about balance. Um, and I think that's one thing I really appreciate in my current relationship is that, you know, my girlfriend is someone who also really enjoys being alone. Um, and so her and I are the people that can like sit in absolute silence in the same room for hours and not feel like we have to talk. But if we want to talk to each other, we want to spend time together, we do. Um, and I think that that's a really beautiful existence. Um, and something that I, like, I don't think I could ever be with someone long-term that like constantly needs reassurance or, uh, physical touch or some kind of, um, you know, just constantly feeling loneliness and not being okay with being alone or being by themselves. Um, or even someone that like doesn't love being by themselves. Cause you know, sometimes I'm, you know, I, I told my girlfriend this, like sometimes I'll just want to like fuck off to somewhere remote for a week and not really check my phone. And it's not because I'm going to do anything nefarious or because I'm doing something else or because I'm bored or mad or angry. It's just because I just want to be alone somewhere new by myself and figure it out. Um, and I think there's nothing wrong with that. Um, Tyson Black asks, if money were no object, what would your daily life look like? Um, I think it would look a lot like it does now, to be honest with you. Um, I would, I think, you know, I already try to eat high quality foods. I think I would absolutely, um, you know, just find and source the best food I can. If that meant, you know, buying my own land and creating a farm that literally just creates food for my family, um, that would, that would do it. And, you know, buying some oyster farms and, you know, maybe a, a cattle ranch and, and, you know, selling the rest to my community or just giving it away. Even if money's no object, I'll just give the rest of food away to people that, you know, can't, can't, uh, can't afford it or don't have access to, to, you know, high quality foods. Um, I think, the biggest thing that would change is where I live. Um, if money were no object, I would probably live on the coast of California. And like, I don't want to live in one place for the entire year, any, at any point ever in my life, you know, I can have like a home base and then spend time elsewhere and travel. And, you know, like, uh, my girlfriend, and I love upstate New York in the summer. So I think that'll always be kind of a staple. Um, if you know, we continue to go down the path we're on. Um, but, um, yeah, I think like the coast of California, south of Monterey, like the Big Sur coast, buying a big swath of land that's also ranch there, and then just building an incredible house from scratch um, where every single detail is designed. Um, the doorknobs, the hinges, the the way the cabinets work, the way that the entryways work, the way that the stairs look, like every single piece of it is designed perfectly to mine and, you know, uh, everyone else around me that's there, so my family uh, at, that, at that point liking um, and a, a place that is, you know, can hold, uh, members of my family and guests and, you know, be able to, to have these amazing experiences and, you know, have access to, uh, whatever people need. And I think also like, you know, I am a big musician. So having like a big music studio where I could record and have fun and jam with friends and bring in new people and a big place to have meetings and convenings. And so I think for me, it's just, it's more about creating spaces that, are conducive to fun, enjoyment, um, experience and growth. Um, that's what I'd probably do with, you know, if money were an object, like I, I think in terms of day to day, like I'd still want to take lots of walks. I'd still want to work out. I'd still want to, you know, um, 
enjoy a good film. I still want to listen to lots of music. I still want to do work on projects. I wouldn't want to stop working ever. Like I, I, I would just probably focus on my own things and say, Hey, I have this idea. I'm going to go spend my own money to get it off the ground. Uh, and then eventually, you know, if I decide to completely bootstrap it myself into a functional enterprise, like I did with my magazine and podcast, um, then I would, but otherwise, you know, happy to join forces with someone doing something really great. Um, I think there's a lot of really cool technologies and, and needs in the current world that just need money uh, thrown at engineering, science, innovation in order to solve that problem. And I'd love to be that person that's, you know, helping fund and grow those ventures. And look, I'm never someone that believes that venture capital or VC money is like the end all be all. Some, v some VCs act like they're gods and like create things. No, it's always down to the scientist, the engineer, the creator, the designer um, to actually make the thing. The, the, the venture capitalists just enable that happen. And uh, you know, they're a dime a dozen. So, um, but yeah, I mean, I would love to be someone that's advising and helping really grow great ideas and the ones that I have really just spending the time to grow them out. Um, but besides that, spending a lot of time with my family, um, I would love kids, um, a couple of them, um, or more than a couple of them, um, and spending as much time with them as possible. Um, I'd love to spend more time outside hiking and biking and exploring. Um, yeah, I mean, so I, th I think it wouldn't change the things I like to do or the things I want to do. It would just amplify them, you know, going from living in a nice apartment that I enjoy and love and have curated myself to like building a custom house from scratch. And, uh, you know, instead of eating really well, like I do now, I would, you know, want to create my own food networks and, um, source my own food as much as possible and donate the rest back. And, you know, I'd want to create my own jobs and my own companies from the wealth I have, um, to kind of augment existing society and my own wealth even. Um, and just give as much back as possible. Um, so I, yeah, like I said, I don't think it really changes the syntax of what I do. It just change how I do it and where I do it and when I do it. Um, definitely give me a bit more freedom of location and time. And I think I'd have a lot more free, a lot less and a lot more free time in different ways. Um, Will Clausen asks, I'd like to know more about your background in aerospace and any exciting things you're working on in that realm. Um, I think I answered a lot of the, like the why aerospace, not and the, and the like the why aerospace, not software question. Um, so, yeah, I have a degree in aerospace engineering, concentration, astronautics propulsion. Um, and I, I liked the application of what I learned in school more than I actually liked school. Um, I'm never been the biggest fan of school and like learning. Um, I think most of it is pretty pointless and I can learn it myself. Um, but I really enjoyed the fact that, you know, I'm, I'm glad that the school I picked had lots of labs. And so I think I had like something like 15 labs attached to different classes. So on average, like two labs a uh, semester, pretty much. Um, and those were always application, whether you're like in a wind tunnel or in like a spacecraft attitude, uh, you know, uh, gimbal machine, or I, I don't know, I'm trying to remember back everything I did without sounding dumb. Um, and, and yeah, so I enjoy aerospace. The one thing I do not enjoy about aerospace is the the way the system was when I entered the job market in 2016, very government contract uh, reliant, uh, you know, the defense machine, the war machine of America, um, all red tape, all top secret security clearances, all, you know, you want to be a lifer at the company for 40 years, you know, you're never, you know, making that much money compared to what you can elsewhere. Um, you know, I want to do much, I want to have much more impact in a much shorter amount of time and be able to have multiple careers in my life than just like be in one place stuck in a lab with, you know, no end going or outgoings, outgoing signal and dealing with red tape half my time. Um, so that's kind of like why I never really went into aerospace. Also like the destructive part of aerospace, I really have no interest working in. Like I don't want to work on missiles or 
bombs or anything like that. Because um, I just think there's there's enough of that already, and I think we should be working on constructive things. But that's just me. Um, you always need the defense thing from a protection perspective, but I just think we spend way too much money on it. Um, and so any exciting things you're working on? Yeah, there are a couple new space startups that I've recently been in talks with, and hopefully in the coming weeks. Today is uh, I think the 17th of June. Um, Hopefully in the coming weeks, I start, you know, actually putting pen to paper with these companies and really helping them grow and scale and do the best that I can to help them, you know, become what they need to be. Um, but yeah, uh, there's definitely a, a current trend in my life to focus on more and more aerospace because A, I love it. B, it's my background. And C, like there's just such a vibrant, hot moment at the current point in time to uh, really make a pretty amazing difference in what is happening in these different verticals. Um, just purely based on the fact that, um, you know, that people are, are moving into it and, uh, having fun. Yeah. Um, my dad asked a second question, another question for you. Talk about why you did a print magazine in a largely digital era. Um, and this is, I think a question I've answered before, but just to kind of highlight it, I believe that the, the purpose of life is to do things for the sake of themselves. Um, if you can have an entire day where you do exactly what you want to do and you don't have to do anything for the point of itself, I think it's a pretty damn good day. Um, and so based on that, you know, to me, I always loved the coffee table photo book. I always loved, you know, these beautiful print magazines that really don't exist anymore. Um, only in a few places, unfortunately. Um, cause it just takes you away from the phone. It takes you away from the screen. It takes you away from different things. Um, so I really love that just like being there and feeling that, tactile thing in your hand that excuse me um another yawn uh that that really takes you and transports you to another place i think it's like the raw form of absorbing content um so that's why we went out of our way um to make a magazine that was printed in the highest quality possible way that felt like you were holding like a small uh paperback coffee table book and so that's basically what it is it's basically a coffee table book subscription uh, about the human experience and um to me digital just felt like what everyone else is doing and it it it, it just felt like normal uh and kind of boring versus this felt a bit more nuanced and much more interesting and i think it actually enables the content that we have in the magazines to um you know it, it makes it magical uh which i think is which i think is part of it and it's a uh, Physical assets are, are great and um, something that is awesome. You know, the logistics of shipping and, you know, the environmental concerns are not the best. But, you know, we went out of our way to use uh, the most ethically sourced paper that we could find uh, using a printer that uses sustainable energy to print it. Um, and basically, you know, like non-rainforest free, all post-consumer recycled as much as possible. Um, you know, with shipping, we do all recyclable or compostable things. Um, I try to you know, the best I can. I plan on eventually, I would love to carbon offset once the carbon credits become a real thing that isn't like a fake waste of money. Um, all the, you know, shipping and manufacturing and everything in the magazine with the profits um, that hopefully we can make are still not profitable. Um, but um, yeah, that's, that's basically it. I think it's something where if you have not put your hands on one, um, you know, give it a try. And uh, if the cost is a barrier to trying it out, then uh, shoot us an email and we'll make something work. Um, but we found that people respond really well at this price point. Um, so we kind of want to keep that, keep that moving. Um, James Hefner 
asked, uh, so I saw a few videos on social media playing a game asking three levels of questions, and thus is the question I love bearing an answer to. Um, what is something only you know makes you happy on the inside? Something only I know makes me happy on the inside. Um, honestly, it's like, this is probably my own ego, but I just have this undying belief in myself that I know that at the end of the day, I am completely and utterly happy alone with nothing. And I can distract myself with many things, um, but at the end of the day, if I lost everything and life was about to end, um, that I think I would be able to find that peace. Um, but that, at the end of the back of the day, kind of gives me a lot of backbone and peace. And, you know, I used to be someone that thought the opposite of that. So um, through a lot of psychotherapy and a lot of meditation and a lot of just time spent in nature, I think. Excuse me. Um, and just that, like, even just the littlest bit of nature, the littlest walk will make me happy. I don't know if that's kind of the way to answer that properly. Um, my sister asks, how was it being the older sibling? Um, I guess interesting. So I think one thing I've, I've picked this up, you know, now that I'm 29 years old and I've seen it with friends with siblings and, you know, spending time with kids and, you know, my, my own cousins having kids now and, you know, just my girlfriend is, has a pretty large family. So that's a pretty good way to see it. Um, and just like being around people, but like, I've learned with parents, like the oldest kid is really like the, they're the test case. It's like the V zero. It's the beta product. Like they're going to make a lot of mistakes. Uh, and then by the time you get to the youngest child, sometimes it's like, that could be, you know, the just two kids like my sister and I, or it could be, you know, five, like, um, you know, some people I know, or even more, um, you know, things change completely. Like people know exactly what to do. You know, they're not freaking out when something might be wrong. Uh, they're not trying to figure out what the best path is because they're either going to do the thing that worked or try the thing that worked with the older kid um, or try something new because it failed miserably. Um, so I think there's a bit more trial and error. And I think that there is uh, more I can get away with, more I could get away with as the older child at first. But once my parents spartaned up to it, it basically cut off that ability for my sister um but also my sister being the youngest think of the benefit of the doubt and like and also the advent of technology like she was born in 98 i was born in 94 um i remember like we got cell phones at basically the same time because like it was just how the how the world was coming online and the safety and connection thing and just it made just it just made sense and so you know she got the you know she they got the benefit of um you know what I was also getting access to. I think one of the things that always pissed me off as a kid, and this is really dumb thinking back to it, but my dad didn't want me watching any like PG-13 movies until I was like 10 or 11. And I remember that my sister would get to watch them with me when I turned 10 or 11, when she, they were still um, six, seven years old, uh, which really pissed me off at the time, which is like obviously really dumb, but like that's how a kid thinks because I thought it was super unfair that they got to watch at the same time I did. Um, and it wasn't, you know, anything bad, you know, like I think Mean Girls is PG-13 technically, um, you know, it's more like that, uh, Ben Trummers or, you know, Talladega Nights, uh, we're not watching any, you know, I don't think I started watching any like raunchy comedy or R-rated scary films until probably high school, um, or maybe like late middle school, but yeah, I don't know, I, I, I just think that that was always funny, um, and then secondarily also, um, you know, my mom was at home 
uh, with me until I think I was three, three and a half, four. I was right after Eliza was born. Um, maybe I was four, just baby four, four and a half when a, we started using a babysitter. And so my sister basically from an age before she could, they could, um, I know I keep saying she, they, um, my sister goes by she, they pronouns and I swap between them the best I can. So if it sounds confusing to anyone, I apologize. Um, I think they, um, were socialized by having like someone else raise them during the day when they were also taking care of me. And when I went to, you know, there was a very short amount of time between the babysitter being full time with me and then me going to kindergartens, me being in school, you know, half the day or part of the day or whatever, um, that they were there. And so I think that my sister developed socially differently than me because she was always going around with my babysitter. Um, and I was my mom and that was a much more kind of close knit system. And I think that's also, you know, um, it's amazing how that tracks later on in life and how that develops relationships. Cause she, cause they were always much more social than I was as a kid. Um, much, many more friends, many more play dates. Um, and I think that's part of just like being socialized by a social person, um, that isn't your parents. So that's definitely something interesting. But yeah, so I, th- I, th- I think like, how was it overall? Like it was fine. Like I had no choice in the matter, you know, like, um, I was born when I was born and, uh, Eliza was born when they were born. And, um, that's kind of how, how the world spins. Right. Um, so it was great. Like, I still think it's great. You know, I don't, some, some older siblings take on this role of like the mentor or the moderator. And, you know, if Eliza were to ask me for advice or feedback, I give it in as brutally honest as a way as I can. That's just who I am. Um, but otherwise I think, you know, Eliza and I live very different lives. Um, and I'd like to spend more time with her, but it's just like, you know, right now things are just absolutely insane. Uh, and we are on opposite ends of the country. And she lives in Burlington, Vermont, which is a not the easiest place to get to if you're coming from the West Coast, I will say. Um, usually, like, I can do it in one stop uh, or sometimes two stops on a plane. I think one stop. I think one stop I can get away with it in a couple places. Um, but it's definitely not like I can hop on a direct flight um, or do it so i think it's also easier to get up there in the summertime in the wintertime if anyone spend time in northern vermont or i guess central vermont i guess it's central um but yeah that's that uh last question um and then i get to go record a podcast right after this with someone else um is from mark mcginnis who is the cover of our second issue of the magazine um amazing surf lifestyle landscape uh photographer, creative, uh, really cool guy lives down in Bend, Oregon. Um, he asked, there has been an undeniable rise in popularity of shooting film, of people shooting film, throwing ceramics, doing DIY building products and all these tangible old school practices. Yet the print industry continues to struggle aside from a few marquee titles like surface journal, adventure journal, free hub, Zimbers journal. Uh, I'll add in what else is on my shelf right now? Sidetracked gear patrol. Um, Scott hidden Scotland beside, um, I think wilderness one or two, um, but yeah, um, and a few others tied to this one specific specific activity. Um, why? Why do you think that is? So, I think because people can now access content immediately for free through most online sources, or they subscribe to like the New York Times or Apple News and get a you know cacophony of shit brought in front of their eyes. Um, 
and I don't have a very positive view on like news and content sources online. I just think most of it's a waste of time and money and space. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I think, I think the thing is, is that people love the idea of shooting film because it feels analog or it feels artsy or maybe it's the trend. I think people want to do ceramics or other types of art because it maybe gives them a release or a sense of fulfillment or they can create something or maybe it's just something their friends are trying. It's like sip, sip, sip and paint nights have like, you know, expanded thousands of percent in the past decade. Um, and, uh, you know, building projects and building things. I think like this, our gen, my generation millennials, um, we definitely like are kind of reinventing this idea of like the DIY, the do it yourself, because I think that there was this massive shift of things to like cheaper, easier, faster, the Amazon, the Ikea, the, the, the fucking, what's that company called? Um, that big furniture, welfare, Wayfair, Wayfair, um, trend of like cheap shit furniture and things made poorly, um, not saying all Ikea stuff is all way, all wafer stuff is crap, but, um, yeah. Uh, where was I going with this? So I, I think that people want, are beginning to want more real things as, as very satisfying to make something with your hands. Um, I think I get some satisfaction out of print because I like made it with my hands and get to make something online that then becomes real. But I think that print journalism is struggling because it's, it's, it's the content funnel, right? It's the, it's the people can get it online on their phone, on their watch, on their computer, on their tablet, on their whatever TV screen, why would they want it in person? So I think people have to have a, a genuine interest in reading on paper or wanting something physical or wanting something fleeting or even collecting it in order to be into it. Um, and I think that surfer journal and, uh, and, and, and adventure journal and those types of things have done so well because mainly the best produce well, like the best performing things are the niche of like wilderness and the outdoors and nature. And I think that that is, um, something that is not going to change and that, you know, people are, you know, really just, um, you know, proliferating this idea that, um, and, uh, yeah, I, I don't, I don't know. It's, it's a hard question, but I think it has to do with the content funnel. I think it has to do with the quality thing. Um, you know, there was this time when all magazines got like super thin and flimsy. And I think that all the magazines that Mark mentioned, and I mentioned are all printed on nice paper at minimum, uh, sometimes really, really good paper like mine. Um, and, uh, a couple of their magazines and their sidetrack prints on really good paper too. Um, on crate as well. Um, and, uh, yeah, I think that's just the trend moving forward. I think people, people are willing to pay for things that are, um, give them purpose, have value, make them feel, uh, something. And I think that that is why I do this podcast. That is why I make the magazine. It's like, I want some, I want people to feel something, you know, I want people to really enjoy what they're doing and be able to just live fantastic fucking lives. Um, and so with that, uh, if anyone has any questions for me, uh, feel free to send me a DM on Instagram or Twitter or shoot me an email or literally any way of contact. And I'll make sure it gets answered in the next AMA, probably in like uh, half a year, probably end of the year, um, or so. But yeah, this has been the 42nd episode of the Holocene podcast. My name is Rob Auchincloss. You can find me online at Rob Auchincloss or at Rob is lost. Uh, it's the easier one to spell. Um, and I hope you all have a fantastic rest of your day. Goodbye.